If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. We are here with episode 11. I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. Welcome back, folks. Okay, we have to talk something momentous is happening. Okay. And the momentous thing is (laughs) after we've been futzing with these mics for over a year, we finally had Fisher come over and figure out how we can actually use two mics instead of one mic. Yeah. Ugh, so my back is not going to be tweaked from basically sitting like a troll on your lap. <laughs> so yeah, we can use we're the in each same other's mic. breath space. <laughs> so bad. Oh, good. I get my own chair. No, yeah, we got some de- technical difficulties worked out. But other than that, how are you, Dr. Scott? I'm, I'm okay. My back is tweaked, so I'm on a little bit of a painkiller. So who knows what's going to come out today? What have you been up to? Uh, let's see. Oh, I was going to tell you, I, um, I started cold cause you told me, mm-hmm. um, that you have to listen to it. Yeah. But I finished back to back. I did Dr. Death and then the dropout. And I cannot do Dr. Death. No, you know what you can after it's, it's after the beginning of the third episode is the worst of, of the surgery stuff. And really? then, yeah. And then they actually don't talk about the gore anymore. I mean, look, I love horror movies and even I had was like, Whoa, this is a bit well, much. So my, th- I could never watch ER. Like I, oh, hate, really? I hate to see people in pain. I can be around dead people all day. When I was on the job, it was like, give me a dead body over a car accident where someone's in pain and hurt. Oh. And I could not, I, I, I don't like, oh, God forbid, like one of those plastic surgery reality shows. Oh yeah, those are like, bad. You know, shoving rods and under people's skin. Oh, oh yeah, there's, there's nothing like oh, the video God. of uh, what is liposuction. It's oh, just God, brutal. it's the worst. So but, but I it, listened to two episodes yeah, I, and I was like, I can't. I, I'll tell you why I liked it, even though you, you, you actually do have to, you do listen to more of the, um, the repercussions when it comes to how people are affected by this awful thing, which is mm-hmm. terrible. It's just terrible. Uh, but what's amazing is the, the legal proceedings and, and actually you, there are two people that come out as heroes, these two other surgeons in that area that are like, we have got to, this guy has got to stop being allowed to be in a surgical room. Yeah, you know, for, terrible. So that was really cool. And then right after it, I watched, I mean, I listened to the dropout, which is another fascinating story. Um, so much in our, 
our lane about access to issues, mm-hmm. both of them actually, Chris Dunch and Elizabeth Holmes, who at 19 dropped out of Stanford University and opened a medical testing company called Theranos. I'm sure most people are familiar with it by now because there's an HBO documentary that just got dropped. Right. The podcast, I highly recommend you watch the uh, listen to the podcast before you watch the movie. But the thing that I came away from both of those with that, I, that we don't have time to talk about today, but the idea that anybody believed or fell for these people when they presented as so bizarre. Right. And that's exactly how I feel about Billy McFarlane and the whole fire festival. Oh stuff. God. Yeah. How do people see him as charming well, and how he could talk people out of their money? And you're watching the documentary, you're watching him and people are narrating and talking about how, what a great salesman he was and a cheerleader. And he got everybody engaged and involved. Motivated. And I'm sitting here with Dan and going, is everybody stupid? These people have money. How are they falling for this? He's got these shifty little eyes. You just shark eyes. Like totally got shark eyes. Dumbass bro that I, I don't know. I don't know how. But I'm sorry. Going back to the other people you were talking about. Just well, but no, there. I mean, there's certainly a parallel there. But there was something about that was uh, listening to those podcasts that really disturbed me. The incongruency between what. You heard people describing, describing Christopher Dunch as he's so professional, he's so confident, he told me exactly what he's going to do, and yet every audio recording we have of Christopher Dunch, somewhere he's clearly under the influence of right. something, but even when he's not, he does not sound intelligent. He's, he, his words are slurred, he is tangential. You know, that's a mm-hmm. where he's not following a linear narrative, not even when he's being deposed. Yeah. And then Elizabeth Holmes has adopted this bizarre, ultra deep voice. And look, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of writers out there talking about women that have to do what we call code switching, moving into a man's world where you have to present with a different veneer, a different affect in order to be taken seriously. And that certainly I can understand if, if she felt like, Oh, I need to be seen as this powerful. Right. I'll adopt some more masculine sure. identity characteristics. And one of them is going to be my voice, but her voice ends up sounding like some demented surfer dude <laughs> from an SNL sketch. I mean, she, she literally Californians. talks, she, the Californians, <laughs> she literally talks like this. Over again, and you know, it's we're going to change the world, and people just don't get it. And I, I just, it's I'm, bizarre. Yeah, it's bizarre. I wonder what the doctor, if it's that um, concept of this is someone in authority that innately I have to believe is smart and good at what he does. And right, so the, the, the patients are in a position of having a bias, right. a favorable bias towards him because right. he's an authority figure. Sure. Yeah, sure. I know. I, I, I think that you're absolutely correct. I'm just surprised that more people aren't looking at it the way we are going, mm-hmm. no, he sounds like an idiot. Yeah. And yes. something else, I mean, before we get into ours, the thing that probably I would love to talk about later is that just that level of Access to sociopathic self-assurance. Mm-hmm. Neither one of these people knew what they were doing. They swore that they did. 
And they made everybody believe that they did. And they also were unrelenting. Like Elizabeth Holmes describes herself as you just keep going. You just keep pushing through. You keep pushing through. Well, no, you don't keep pushing through when you've already lied to people about what you're doing with their blood tests. You know, that that's not... Sure, that's pushing. That's going. You're slicing right through human lives, and yeah. that was virtually. And then Chris Dunch, you know, he never said no. They gave a there was a an example in the podcast with one of his fraternity brothers or friends from college. They were having a party. They have an argument. Chris goes home in a huff, and then calls the guy and says, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm paraphrasing. He says, like, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. And the guy says, yeah, sure. Come on back. Because the guy is like a championship wrestler. So Dunch, who's like a football player, like super muscular at that time, goes over and he goes up and he thinks he's going to take the guy down. And the wrestler just like floors him in the front yard. And Chris jumps up. And instead of being chagrined, instead of being, uh, you know, put in his place, mm-hmm. his response is, I know how you did that. Uh, I, I got it down. Let's, let's do it again. And then so this, this supposedly uber testosterone-fueled face-to-face becomes like an opportunity for him to learn how to fight. To just try it over and over just again. Just he keeps going and keeps going until he's just like a bloody mess in the front, well, front I mean, yard. Same thing with Fire Festival. If that hurricane hadn't come through, I mean, up to the 11th oh hour... God. They were still planning on following through with it, yeah. which was impossible. It wasn't going to happen. And it, I, I really think if they didn't have the scapegoat of that hurricane to blame it on, that they just would have tried and no one would have been there. I don't know. But same thing, like yeah. the tenacity of like, we're just, it's going to happen. We're going to make it happen. So that's a lack of insight. All it, three of these are exhibiting a lack of insight I, or, a, or a, a somewhat of a lack of insight and then choosing to look at any evidence to the contrary right. and lots of denial. There was also something, I can't remember the guy's name, you know, when in fire festival, when they were interviewing different attendees mm-hmm. and there was one super good looking Asian guy, mm-hmm. very, you know, kind of surfer dude or frat bro accent mm-hmm. to him. And he's talking about, you know, how it all went down and it was clearly all falling apart. And then they basically were told, well, go get your tent. So he's laughing as he talks about, well, I didn't want anybody around me. So I took a knife and I destroyed all the tents around me so nobody else could sleep in them. Weird. I, I froze it at that. I mean, I, I took the, the remote and stopped it and I looked over at Dan and I said, did he just say that? Right. Like, Lord, Lord of the Flies. Yeah, already. totally Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Well, some of that access to stuff is going to come in today in our topic later on. But I'm very excited about this. I feel like this is one of our most sort of L.A. noir episodes in a way. And today we're going to be talking about Frank Lloyd Wright. Yes, the architect. I know. Doesn't make sense yet. There's a story there, though. (laughs) But he has a, a couple of really dark connections to Los Angeles. And I stumbled across his backstory and just found it fascinating. I'm fascinated by his homes here in L.A. anyway. But we are going to explore Los Angeles through Frank Lloyd Wright's life and how it is still being talked about today in a very, very famous case. So Frank Lloyd Wright is from Wisconsin, and he opened his first 
office, his architectural office in Oak Park, Illinois. And that's sort of the area where he settled with his first wife, Kitty, and they ended up having six kids. And right from the get-go in his own first practice, he was kind of known for going against the grain. So at that time, turn of the century, everything was Victorian. And, you know, kind of these tall Victorian multiple-story homes where he then decided to... Think the Adams family or the Munsters, like sort of, you know, traditional almost, Mm -hmm. like lots of gingerbread, um, wood carvings and very quaint, very small rooms. Right. Lots of different paint schemes going on, you know, colorful. And he went against the grain and started working and developing prairie type homes. So that was more of like, instead of building up, sort of building out long. And that's what he was doing primarily in the Illinois, in the state of Illinois. It was around that time that he ends up getting some clients that are also neighbors of theirs. And it's a couple. And he starts spending a lot of time with these clients, actually both he and Kitty. And there's kind of rumors of like, well, they, were they swingers or chick-a-bow, chick-a-bow, what's wow. going on? Turn of the century swingers. <laughs> um, but he gets really cozy with the wife, Mayma, Mayma Cheney. And they spend a lot of time together. And, and she is described as essentially his intellectual equal. He loved that she challenged him intellectually. She was very progressive and just eventually figures out this woman is my soulmate. Not the woman that had my six kids, Mm -hmm. but as one does, as one does, right? (laughs) I I need someone to challenge me for them to be my soulmate. I don't know why I settled for someone who didn't before, but so in 1909, he decides I'm going to shut down my office, and Mayma and I are going to run off to Tuscany. So he shuts down his office, leaves his wife and his six kids in Oak Park, and takes off to Tuscany for a year. So this affair becomes very sensationalized in the media. They sort of... Well, culturally at the time, that would have been a huge no-no. Oh, for sure. Just enormous. For sure. And so they are sort of escaping it by leaving... But they're only gone for about a year. So, you know, it's kind of architectural, nerdy stuff. But he gets a lot of influence after going to Europe and kind of seeing things, how things are being done over there at that time. Ends up coming back and they settle in Wisconsin. (laughs) I had to think for a second. Yeah, it was Wisconsin. But this is sort of where he starts his, his new life in America with his his mistress, and her children. He talks about, whether he's talking about his work or his personal life, that he is just driven by these artistic impulses. So I think impulse is a really interesting word when we're talking about what his personality may have been like. So just with that background history, before we get into what happened in Wisconsin, let's talk a little bit about him and why he probably made some of these decisions that he made personally and professionally. Yeah. I mean, we're once again in that, that odd position. So this is someone who has been deceased for many years. He is an icon in the U S and around the world as an artist and a designer. And he still has living relatives. You know, there are great 
there are several really great documentaries. There's one that was done 20 years ago by Ken Burns that has two or three parts, and they really are fascinating because they show... I'm sure that they show a good part of the dirty laundry, and there's probably more that they don't talk about that probably is not suitable for an audience, but it is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that when he moved back to Michigan to build a new home with his new wife, did they get married? Well, it would do, no, they didn't. No, get okay, married. they didn't get married. And it was Wisconsin. Okay, Wisconsin. Sorry. So when they go to Wisconsin, they build a commune or they start a project where he is going to be doing his design work, and it's called Taliesin. And Taliesin, I believe, I think the origin is Celtic, but the word was like a, a character out of Celtic mythology, which was this a prophet, a poet and a prophet. So right there. Mm, Sounds like some other episodes we've done. Right. I mean, we want to, he certainly was a a gifted artist and maybe he was speaking in the big context. I mean, but it is somewhat telling as this character starts to unfold that he really did later on, he called himself a prophet and you know what? To some extent he was, he really kind of changed the, the direction of architecture for many Architects, And then he also fought against a really ugly movement of uh, that was happening in Europe that was all concrete and glass and the brutalist movement. And they're I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure some people appreciate them. I think they're quite ugly buildings, um, but he he did not do that. He pushed against it. So when he created this commune slash educational slash learning center. By this time he was known for his designs and he created this beautiful, large sort of almost, uh, not ethereal, but like grounded new way of looking at design, living and learning and working resonance. Right. And people came, students came from around the world to be air quotes taught by him But not only did they not, I mean, they didn't pay tuition, but they paid to be in the presence of Frank Lloyd Wright. And I'm sure he wasn't there that much either. I mean, he's off working on projects. And he was traveling, but yeah. they were there and he would come and he would say, we do this. This is our next project. And as well as working four to six hours a day of pretty hard physical labor, they were hand building the buildings. They were working a working farm. They were cooking the meals. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear that a lot of talented people were drawn to him Mm -hmm. and then probably learned from being each other. There's something to be said for being in an environment that's intellectually and creatively stimulating. But, you know, it starts to have like a little bit of a culty vibe. I mean, he's, it's certainly a cult of personality at that time. Right. Right. Yeah, it's I think it was unique even especially for that time because yes. we think of that phenomenon sort of happening, you know, more recently. So, I don't know. It I mean, definitely a, a narcissist and um the way that that propelled him in his work was a wonderful attribute to have, but it also lends to Hey, I want what I want when I want it, and I want to run off to 
Italy and leave my family. I want to leave my wife and six kids. And interestingly enough, in all the documentary material that I've listened to, nobody talks about who supported his wife and six kids. Yeah, I didn't I, come across that either. I, I couldn't find any information. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't support them, but I right. found that fascinating. And, you know, when you talk about that narcissism, we should also probably expand on it a bit uh-huh. that it really, it's it's certainly some tendencies are shown in his behaviors. So we're going to just, just, you know, we're talking about his behaviors, but it doesn't, it's not simply relegated to uh, narcissism. I mean, there's some real antisocial, you know, tendencies that he has that who, who does that? I mean, a narcissist, yes, does that, but to not have empathy for your six children, but that you're just abandoning them. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it comes back to impulsiveness too. If you're just going to pick up and go and you're not having that consider, I mean, I don't know. We don't know how long he considered, am I going to go or not? No, we don't have those details. But interestingly enough, it's, it's, there's that parallel between his personal life of, I do what I want when I want it and I'm going to do it right now Mm -hmm. and his professional life. Mm -hmm. I do what I want. I'm going to do it this way. And it actually would happen to work. Right, well, sure. because he was doing something radically different that was exquisitely beautiful. And it's being reinforced th- with great feedback. Right. One of the things that he he always said that he hated big cities because he hated skyscrapers and this and that and the reasons he hated it, which didn't really pan out to be quite true. He actually liked aspects of big cities. But one of the things that he did in the designs of his homes is he had a very organic view of well, where is it going to be built? How does it interact with the actual terrain and the land, the geography? How is it going to look in spring versus fall? How and 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 you see that in some of his later works. I mean, we have we have a collection of the Frank Lloyd Wright Lego houses here in our apartment. And Falling Water. I mean, if anybody wants to see it, you know, Google Falling Water House. It's one of the most beautiful things ever. I mean, to imagine living there, which later we'll get to because you can't actually live there. <laughs> you can't actually live in his homes. His, his homes weren't really very functional, <laughs> but they were gorgeous. So he builds this home in 1911 in Wisconsin and they're living there. So again, it's it's him and Mema and her two children from her previous relationship. She brought her kids. I don't know why he didn't bring his kids. Yeah. But obviously, I mean, he probably had a decent relationship with his son, Lloyd Wright, who was also an architect. And we'll get to him later because he was in Los Angeles and he joined him. But he ends up going to Chicago to work on a job. I forget what it was. Darn it. I didn't write it down. But it was a really large project. And he gets word while he's there that something really terrible has happened at the property. Back at Taliesin. Back at Taliesin. So there was a cook and a handyman that lived on the property, He, both he and his wife. And his name was Julian Carl- Carlton. And... I guess there was some indication you got from some of the documentaries that he was sort of infatuated with Mema. I haven't yes. seen that, but that makes sense. And so at some point, she apparently reprimanded him for something, whether it was for crossing a personal boundary or not doing something correctly on the property. I don't know exactly what it was. But, it was a, he, was, but he was reprimanded. Sure. Yeah. He, he was reprimanded. And fired, actually. She was, oh, okay. Yeah, he was fired. Okay. 
And he really, and these are accounts from his wife, really was upset about this, really obsessed over this. And as his wife said, became insane over it. Now, I don't know what he was like before that, but she says that he just went insane after this, this incident. So after he helped in, well, cause he, he was still working at the property because he helped serve lunch to Mema and her family, as well as some of the other people that lived at the property. And what he did is once they were all in the large dining room, he locked all the doors and windows from the outside, except for one window. And he soaked the rug, the carpeting in gasoline and lit it on fire. So they had nowhere to escape, but this one window. And I believe Mema was the first one to find the window to start to climb out of it. And as people, including Mema and her two children who were 11 and I'm sorry, 10 and 13, as they each were leaving the window, he was waiting with a hatchet and just would hit them in the back of the neck as they came out and pull them out and, and wait for the next one to wait come for out. The next one, so it was it was a it, combination of essentially hacking them to death as they were coming out, and he's waiting for the next one. And he killed her and her two children, as well as four other members of the staff. Wow! So seven people. I mean, horrific. I just the it's such a horrific crime and the the planning and the so and that's violent a, nature of it it's so violent and but especially what you said there there was planning there was yeah. a lot of planning like and you know we i remember doing the doing the FBI training several years ago and then having to use it for my current job where we got a referral for someone that was planning to do planning some violence against a group of people and had strategically scoped out the location mm-hmm. where it was going to happen and was doing the same thing, like sort of knew where the bolt hole was going to be and was going to wait outside the bolt hole. Right. You know, the exit from the, I'll call it a restaurant. It's not a restaurant. I'm giving no identifying right, information, right, right. but this person was there waiting. So here's certainly planning, which would go against I don't know if that would go against an insanity plea or not. We'd yeah, probably have to call that he just like Jess went insane, but, <laughs> but they did say, I mean, I did find this record that when the police were interviewing him afterwards, he looked completely confused and disorganized and was saying, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what happened, mm-hmm. what's going on. So, I mean, we'll never know. It's, it's over a hundred years now, right. but the idea that did someone, was this a, a mentally ill man who had a dissociative fugue or was he just angry? I mean, that's like, that's a big anger response to getting fired. Right. Well, it is. And, and unless his wife, there's an underlying like obsession or. Right. I, I think it's with the information that we have is probably a culmination of all of that. Because the wife did say a couple of weeks leading up to it that she saw an increase in, in paranoia. Yeah. So if if he has that bubbling under the surface and then is triggered by this. This scolding from someone he may, you know, have eyes for as well. Who knows? But, you know, there's one thing to lock everyone in and set a fire, but to then leave them away out so you can hack them to death. Well, and, you know, we've referred to it here a couple of times, the Kevin Cameron model of threat assessment out of Canada. He talks a lot about those outliers, those individuals that have that 
underlying bubbling animosity, anger. And then when a supposed relationship breaks, that that is generally the trigger that sends a person off. So maybe we have a, maybe we have a 120 year old example of this. Yeah, maybe. But I love to hear that essentially the the sheriffs because he fled he did this the sheriffs were looking posses of farmers were formed to go look because this vast vast land we're talking about well and he's also a person of color that was something that like i didn't want i mean that doesn't need to be for the purposes of the crime being committed that does not need to be a major factor however in thinking about how they would have pursued him at that time That would have been a very big racial issue. Well, and it's telling. You look at the newspaper articles from then that I pulled up, and there's some pretty colorful language as far as how they're describing him. That's terrible. But uh, eventually eventually he crawled out of a boiler room, and he was nearly suffocated from the heat, I guess. And he said that he had taken some poison as well, but wouldn't give any reason for the crime. So... Whether he tried to kill himself afterwards, but that you know, there's some, there's some running and hiding and knowing that you've done something wrong. I think that all could play into you know his state of mind. But today, it's still the largest mass murder in Wisconsin's history. Good for them. I right? mean, like I know that's a horrible thing to well, say, but given given the history of the past two years and the increasing amount of mass murders and shootings, no kidding, like seven people at once. Wow. Yeah, good old Wisconsin. So Mema is buried at a chapel near the home in Wisconsin. The chapel, interestingly, is the first structure that Frank Lloyd Wright ever helped build as a teenager wow. and got him interested in architecture. So I thought that was kind of sweet. And his family is, is mostly buried there as well. They also accompanied her casket in a hand-drawn cart by the attendees of the funeral. So they walked her remains Mm -hmm. in the casket on this wheeled cart, all dressed in black down to that chapel and into the area, area where he was buried. And that's something we'll circle back around to later. How Victorian. I know. Yeah. For somebody that didn't like it. Well, and, and much of the house was destroyed in the fire as well as some of the surrounding land. And Frank Lloyd Wright said after going back and, and experiencing all that, He said, the gaping black hole left by the fire in the beautiful hillside is no less empty, charred, and ugly than my own life. Oh. I know. Very sad. But it also leads into... So that's interesting because here we are just a few seconds ago. We're talking about the traits of this individual that do present very strongly in access to... You know, there's some antisocial qualities to him. There's certainly some very strong narcissistic qualities to him. And yet here's someone who is living through an amazing an, an, an extraordinary circumstance of tra- tragedy. Absolutely. And he is he's crushed. Mm-hmm. And that goes on to significantly impact the rest of his work. Right. After this happens in 1915 he ends up coming to Los Angeles. And Los Angeles at that time was sort of the place where people would come who were trying to find themselves again, feel like they needed a place to be reborn. So it's kind of like it is now. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is sort of the same, huh? yeah. 100 years later. But it, population growth was just exploding right. here. 
and there's new money. There's uh, sort of this anything goes, yeah, right? feeling of like reinvention, and it kind of makes sense for him to to end up here. It wasn't the big city that you know it, it is now, of course, but you know we had mentioned that he didn't really care for big cities, but maybe felt like sort of that transitional time in his life to come out here. And as I mentioned before, his son, Lloyd Wright Jr., he went by Lloyd Wright, was already here and had uh, started an architectural business as well. He ends up going to this exhibition in San Diego, and it's it was called the Panama California Exhibition, but essentially it was looking at pre-Columbian and Mayan architecture. And he just really became fascinated with it. And that was really the jumping off point for his architectural design career here in Los Angeles. And there's, it's so interesting how it is such an LA thing now to see a Frank Lloyd Wright house or to see it in a film and think of how, where he was in his life when he came to Los Angeles. But do you want to talk a little bit about the structures and what they look like and how they represent possibly what he was going through? Yeah. I mean, it has to do, it's an interesting confluence of information at that time, which was not particularly Accurate. So even though he was here, it's sort of like a mini World's Fair. So it was California and Panama, you know, looking at sort of the indigenous cultures and the indigenous influences that that architects and archaeologists were aware of at that time. And without going into a whole other discussion, which would be fascinating for another podcast for someone who's interested in this, is sort of... Um, sociological racism, you yeah. know, looking at people of the past as if it's, it's sort of like the old trope of, of, uh, well, the Egyptians couldn't have built the pyramids. It must've been aliens. There's no way they could have done that. They don't have, didn't have the technology sort of put on as an entertainment show more than like, let's learn from this. Right, right, right. So there were some displays of people dressed up as indigenous people that wasn't, you know, would certainly not be PC today, but there was also a mishmash. And, you know, so what Wright came away from this with is being very, very um, influenced and inspired by these radically different buildings and repetition of patterns. And repetition of patterns, I think, is is another interesting point I'll come back to. But he he named it as being a Mayan influence when it was actually like a mishmash of everything that was at that right. conference or that, a, that exposition. A lot of the pre-Columbian architecture did revolve around death. It was all around death because there was a lot of human sacrifice right? and a lot of the structures were tombs. Right. So that influences these amazing designs that he makes for houses in L.A., but you have to have the understanding that what he was being inspired by were tombs. Mm-hmm. And they are not completely functional as living spaces, although they're quite beautiful. Like even one of the most famous ones that you're going to talk about, the woman lived in it for two months and then like, yeah, I'm not going to live here. Yeah. But it's an amazing, amazing piece of um Design And one of the things that I think is fascinating, because you'll get in more into what he does, but in these seminal homes that he has in Los Angeles, 
he created a new technique that was using concrete because nobody wanted to use concrete. But he didn't want to be like the brutalist sort of utilitarian buildings in Europe at the time. What he wanted to do was meld a little bit of the arts and crafts movement, which was going on and these mine influences. So he would take these molds and they would be reinfer- reinforced with rebar and poured concrete. So you would see patterns repeated over and over again. And they're quite gorgeous. I mean, mm-hmm. there's plenty of stuff on the, the web to look at it. But now that I know what I know about his, his horrific tragedy, I look at those buildings and I think he's ruminating Oh, it's it's incredibly sad. It's like he's stuck in a grief loop, and he's just right. like this pattern over. I mean, we as the recipients get to see this beautiful thing, but he's right. really he's living trauma, basically. Right, right. Or it's at least he's expressing inspires, trauma, inspiring his work. Yeah. Which, if if that's where he's at, the intersection of his life at that time was coming away from this horrendous grief and trauma seeing this inspiration at this exhibition where it's all about death he just jumped in with both feet and people were like good god what are you doing you're using concrete yeah (laughs) nobody's using concrete you're doing what you're making blocks uh so the legos work really well because it it actually really looks like it So 1921 was his first project in L.A., and that's the Hollyhock House. And that was built for the uh, daughter of an oil baron in an area known as Olive Hill, which is the Hollywood Hills. Um, His studio was at Harper and Fountain in West Hollywood for people that are familiar with the area. And just tons of his homes have been used in films. I think the Ennis house is probably the most popular that has been used in, in tons of movies out there. And the most, probably the most recognizable one is a scene from one of the most gorgeous and I think gorgeous and disturbing scenes from Blade Runner. Oh, right. When, uh, when Decker goes to talk to the Android designer and they basically use the Ennis house as the, they use the uh, some shots of the exterior, and then they... They drive in, right? Yeah, they, but they also, the interior, they took... It's sort of like they took uh, inspiration from the interior, and then they recreated that on a sound a soundstage oh, okay. to film it. Oh, okay. I did not know that. But, I mean, you couldn't have a more noir movie than, right. than Blade Runner, which is sort of a futuristic noir. Right, right. And... Growing up here, I think my mom took me by it. We drove by it. But she always just referred to it as the Mayan house. Oh, okay. And for all these years, you know, before, mostly as a kid and a teenager, I just thought there was one. I didn't realize that there were <laughs> several. several yeah. <laughs> and actually out closer to me, there's there's some as well out east. But even in in the 1980s, um, film producer Joe Silver, he brought the Stroner house which is also here in Los Angeles, and he restored it. And he was obsessed with Frank Lloyd Wright. He even incorporated some homages to him in his films for, like in Die Hard, the news station is KFLW when they drive up. And 
then there's a scene where the the villain Hans Gruber is talking about this Frank Lloyd Wright bridge. It was it was actually a, a real model and a real design that he had done for a bridge up in the Bay Area, but it never got made. But there's this whole scene where he's talking about it. He's looking at the model on the table when they're inside the building. Yeah, given all the structural problems that Frank Lloyd Wright's oh, structures yeah, I don't, don't think he'd want a bridge. <laughs> I definitely don't. Now, is this the one that looks like the like a mouth? No. Oh, that's no, a different one. That's the one. That's one we'll talk about later. Okay. No, this. I love how uh, a biographer of Frank Lloyd Wright, Brendan Guild, he said that his homes here in Los Angeles are better suited to protect a Mayan god than an American family. Exactly. And I think that's just perfection because these haven't been great livable spaces. From again, you, you talked about some of the documentaries, but you can see how people don't stay in them long, or how, especially now, how they're falling apart and the restoration that has to go in. There's a lot of money that has to be put into restoring them, yeah, and it you know, we we have a connection to the Innes House, so we know that there's right. there's a lot of work going into that to make right. it livable. But even later on in his life, he started a movement. I think it was he, someone challenged him to write to build an affordable home for five thousand oh, dollars. Did really? you know about this whole part? I didn't. Okay, so this is much later. This is in like the, the actually the the later years when he after this long dry period where no one was taking him seriously, and he designed a home that was supposed to only cost five thousand dollars at that time. You know, obviously, you want to. You have to correct for income and inflation, which it probably would have been, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars, but still would have been considered affordable. And he built these two and three bedroom, very low lying homes that were made with inexpensive materials, but a great deal of detail. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first times that there were things such as. Uh, hidden built-ins. So there's cabinets, there's shelves. And first people are going, oh, this is really great. We don't have to, you don't have to worry about buying furniture. And then you, what they turned around, they realize is like, no, this is part of his personality asserting itself is yes, I will design these homes, but I want people to live the way I want them to live. And I'm only going to make the breakfast nook work this way with what the furniture that I've built, nothing else will work with it. That the armchairs or the club chairs have to be this size or else they won't work in the home. And that caused a problem for people because at first they're like, oh, this is great. And then they realized, oh, I can't really personalize this to my needs. And it also became the granddaddy of the ranch house, you know, which became bastardized and right. mutated into sort of suburbia, which would have horrified him. <laughs> horrified definitely, him. Definitely. He left L.A. in 1923, um, but he he left us so much. He, again, sort of that time period, 1923, I think of definitely that sort of sinister precursor to L.A. noir and layer on top of that the connections to violence and death in his own life as well as what these homes represent as temples, as mausoleums, as a forever resting place, maybe for his own grief. I think, you know, I've I've been a fan of his homes here in Los Angeles. 
And after learning all of this, it just gives such, you know, so much more of a backstory. It's, it's just a really cool, for, for me, somebody who is into, you know, things that are a little bit more macabre, I think it's a, a really neat twist to have stumbled upon. And he, and those shows, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of it now. In fact, I'm texting my friend Bob because he'd greenlit a series years ago. There was a vampire series. Oh, was it not the brood, the legacy or something like that? The the head vampire of one of the clans lived in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And it was one of the ones that had just been restored. That looks like a combination of an animal's open mouth and a Mayan temple. It's really amazing. So that's the Soden house that I'm the Soden house. About. Oh, right. Okay. So, so there's the connection. So the Soden house was actually built by his son for in 1926 for John Soden. And it was most recently featured in the TNT show. I am the night, which I, again, we say this all the time. We assume if you're listening to our podcast that you have been watching this, but it was a fantastic take on the Hodel family and their connection to the black Dahlia. But it, it actually was the home of Dr. George Hodel. So it was his. It was Frank. It was Lloyd Wright, not Frank Lloyd Correct. Wright. That, okay, Correct. that's fascinating. And also, it's interesting because I'm old enough that I remember there was a TV movie of the week starring uh, Lucy Arnaz okay. as the Black Dahlia, which is very really? interesting. Oh yeah, it was like a kind of a big thing back in the. I think that must have been the late seventies. And it was like a big role for her, and she was really great in it. But now watching this series, I Am the Night, you realize like, oh, this is this whole this whole situation was way darker than just a young poor young woman getting murdered. Like that was way was darker a- and a stone's throw from your apartment right now. Yes, literally the last time I was waiting for you, I drove by the house. <laughs> So the the Soden House, it's also known as the Franklin House. It's on Franklin Avenue. It's been called the Shark House because it does look like that big sort of mouth. It it does have some of the Frank Lloyd Wright sort of Mayan influence as well that his son sort of took over and, and started implementing into his own work. And the poured concrete and the repeating patterns. Right, yeah. right. Kind of that chunky blocking is all throughout. But they, they film on location in I Am the Night, so lots of interiors, which that has also been in several other films right. and TV shows as well. But this really cool sort of indoor-outdoor space with a pool and a courtyard and just some really neat details inside. But so if you have not been familiar with this story, and I would encourage you to not just watch I Am the Night, but the companion podcast to it is Root of Evil, and it talks all about the Hodel family, and it's done very well. It's it's absolutely excellent. It's almost like L.A.'s... Jack the Ripper story. Now, hundred percent. That's what I think. Right, because, yeah. because it's not. Although it's not the, certainly not the numbers that that Jack the Ripper killed in London, but the idea that this it was such a bizarre murder and a bizarre crime, and it shook police up like it was so bizarre it's and very vicious. Jarring. It's jarring. A right. Jarring scene and. Oldest unsolved. Right. For years, for decades, completely unsolved with all of these conflicting theories and conflicting ideas of of who was guilty. Right. Right. uh, So Dr. George Hodel lived in the Soden home and 
it is believed that that is that he killed the Black Dahlia, and that's where she was murdered. Um, On he, that location, in the home, okay, in the home. So he he was a doctor that was the expert in treating STDs. He was also known to have performed some illegal abortions at the time, some in his home. If you want to learn more about it, again, uh, either listen to the podcast, Root of Evil, or I would really encourage you to read Steve Hodel's series of books. They're called The Black Dahlia Adventure, number one, two, and three. There's three volumes. So, And the connection there so is... So Steve Hodel is George Hodel's son. And he lived in the Soden house as well growing up. And he ended up becoming an LAPD homicide detective. And at some point was turned on to this idea that his father had been one of the suspects in the Black Dahlia case. And he said, I'm going to set out to investigate this to prove it wrong because there's no way. And he ends up (laughs) saying, oh, my God, it totally is my dad. And I have uncovered way more information than anyone else has to prove that. So his books are just filled with a ton of research. And he he does a couple of uh, several of the episodes of Root of Evil as well, talking about this. But if you want a real deep dive, he's got those three volumes. So the part for me that was just like, blew my mind and this is sort of what I'll end with with this whole sort of dark connection to Los Angeles is that when Steve Hodel is doing his research and doing his investigation he realizes that the USC School of Architecture which is a really prominent architectural school has of course archives on Frank Lloyd Wright and Lloyd Wright so he's like okay I'm going to go take a look at them and and see what they have. You know, he's he's unturning every single stone. So he goes down to the archives and he starts looking through the files and he finds a couple of receipts. And these receipts are basically for landscaping and he finds 10 or he finds a receipt for 10 bags of 50 pounds cement bags. And he finds receipts for, you know, $300 plus of landscaping that was done, including bags specifically of Fertilite brand fertilizer. And these receipts are dated January 9th and 10th of 1947. So, do you know what day that the Black Dahlia's body was found? No. January 15th, wow. 1947. Do you know what was used to drag her two body parts from the car to her resting place and what were left at the scene? I would say it's probably the concrete bag or the fertilizer bags. Two bags of cement and two bags of fertilizer. And the bags were left there. Clearly a different time, way before forensic files. Because this is the kind of thing. Clearly, because this would have been solved in half an hour. Come on. So to me, I was just like, boom, that's physical evidence yes. and it 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 just it, it's amazing you know it, after 
all the theories, like you said, and and for it going on for so long. And if I'm, I can't imagine, again, if there's anybody listening to us that doesn't know at least the, the rudimentary basics of the Black Dahlia case is that this young woman, her remains were found in a field in South L.A. completely her torso was severed from the lower half of her body. She was cut like surgically for whatever reason. Right. Right. I mean, completely bizarre. It is, which would have required someone who had much like the Jack, the Ripper, right. Had medical experience uh, or, you know, there are butchering maybe. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's so many more, Connections, and I'm not going to go through all of them because I just wanted to really connect the the Lloyd Wright properties to this. But there's handwriting analysis. There is um, it, recordings of him talking about this case. There's tons of things out there that connect him, and there's possible DNA evidence out there right wow. now. So, just and again, such also such a, a very case. well respected rich person who at that time yep. probably had enough money to throw at it to make it go away. Well, he, he absolutely did. And and he had done it. He, he had sexually abused his own daughter and had gotten her pregnant and forced her to have an abortion and went through an incest trial. He was actually brought up on charges and pretty much paid everybody off and was acquitted and made wow. her look completely crazy. And yeah. oh, so he made his daughter look crazy. Yep. And okay, yep. don't wonder if she got. Did she get institutionalized? Do we? Um, I wouldn't be surprised because that was the big answer for any right. kind of family it, member it, you didn't want I to deal with is lock him up for a very short period of time. Okay. Yes, how tragic. Uh, but her story is is all throughout Root of Evil as well. Um, and then you know he he thinks that. Uh, the cops are maybe starting to close in on him, and he takes off to Asia for the rest of his life. Actually, he comes back to San Francisco but in his last few years, but lives to a ripe old age of 91 or so. I know. It's disgusting. Isn't that interesting as well? I mean, I don't know if there's a connection there because you're more well-versed in, in this particular case than I am. But the idea that he's a doctor, has this level of wealth, lives in this house that is still an architectural marvel and design marvel and at the time would have been like living in something that's even more notable than it is today i oh, would think yeah. and yeah. yet he i mean isn't there some sort of indication that he was a frustrated artist himself right so he he was obviously highly highly intelligent but very much wanted to be an artist. And as a child, it was, you know, trying to put him in music lessons. Um, and then as he got older, he, it, at this period of time, really got into the surrealist movement. And <laughs> it's so fascinating. There's so many more connections from the way that Black Dahlia's body was mutilated to works of art in the surrealist movement at the time. And how she was basically the ultimate surrealist art project. But yes, to answer your question. I'm, I, I'm almost <laughs> speechless because that, you know, all I could think of, because I did not know that particular aspect of the case. Mm-hmm. And yet, how many times as somebody, you know, as somebody who is, 
I mean, I'm a media guy. I was raised by a television set and, and movies. How many times has that been used as a plot in a thriller or a horror movie right. that the killer is using death as his artistic expression. Right. And here it is. And here it is like the sort of the granddaddy exhibit yeah. of it. Right. Yeah. He, he was very, you know, with this very, um, eccentric house, he hosted these wild parties with sort of the, the arts community and he and, and the surrealist artist, man Ray were very, very close. Wow. Um, and yeah, there's just, you know, a lot of sort of, um, sexually deviant goings on at the house, um, you know, obviously with the, uh, the molestation of his own daughter, rape of his own daughter, a lot Which of is pretty clear if you're going to go that, if you have that right. sort of a parameter of acceptable behavior, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there were, I'm sure there were a lot of substances being done. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say a lot of, of substances being done as well as drugging people to erase their memory Wow. of, of things going on. So it's fascinating, uh, more fascinating, you know, it, Sometimes I'm like, oh, okay, Black Dahlia, like, yeah, everyone knows that. It's L.A. It's been everyone done. Everyone talks about right, it. Yeah. You know, everyone has their story about it. But when you dive into the George Hodel side of it, it just is mind-blowing. And honestly, I hope that a DA one of these days or a law enforcement agency says, yeah, we're going to pick this up look at everything that Steve Hodel has done and we're going to close this case. So in I am the night, is that factually correct about her being the illegitimate daughter, his illegitimate granddaughter? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Those characters are. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's so disturbing. That's also a great scene between the adoptive mother and the mm-hmm. daughter when they, when she figures it all out. Right. Wow. So the, the, yeah, that is all, all God, everyone's so good in it. Chris Pine is amazing. He's a really it. good actor. He's really good. I think it's hilarious that he's not only is he a good actor, he, he's got a great, He's got great, great comedy timing. I don't know if he's a nice person. I hope he's a nice person or I'd be so, sorely disappointed. But he's so good looking that in order for you to not be distracted by him on screen, they always have him being beaten up. Right. He like always has a cut or a bruise on his like face. a black eye or a cut lip or, you know, I mean. Even in like Star Trek. Yeah. And- <laughs> it's very smart because otherwise it's like looking at yeah, this giant man kitty. I mean, he's just like yeah. so pretty. Yeah. So on April 20th, I'm going to be doing a Black Dahlia bus tour in L.A. Oh, wait. You keep telling me to check my calendar and I, I keep not doing it's it. It's sold so. out now. Damn it. Oh, you know what? How about, you if I just, how about if I just run alongside the bus? Oh, that's a fantastic Or if idea. I just, like, I'll do a really sad imitation of... Uh, I'll like dress up. I'm Chris Pine and like run beside the bus. Oh my and they're God, like, yeah, terrifying. sir, you're not Chris Pine. No, you're you can maybe you can pay not. my mom off to take her ticket. No, <laughs> that'd be great for you. Um, I will let you guys know experience. how it is. I plan on obviously documenting it as we go along that day on our social media, but it should be great, you know, especially with just kind of my newfound interest in the story. Um, yeah, I'll put out all the information out there, and we'll we'll see how it goes. I think it's going to be fantastic. I also I just think this whole episode maybe it's not the the typical one that we cover, but it's so interesting looking like just stepping back and looking at the big picture. There's so much more information, but how these things are connected that 
these people that strive to be something here is Frank Lloyd Wright and Lloyd Wright pushing the boundaries of architecture and art and form and function in order to bring about a new way of looking at our residences and our, our, uh, our workspaces. And they are the embodiment of free flow of talent regardless of the fact that they have some personality stuff going on. I don't know about Lloyd Wright, but certainly Frank Lloyd Wright does his dad. And then here is, if this is accurate, if it does turn out that Hodel is the murderer, that this is, that he is the ultimate bastardization of that. Right. The, the true dark side of it. I mean, they were interested. I mean, circling back around to Frank Lloyd Wright had some stuff that is fascinating. His third paramour that he ends up with at Taliesin, West, after they they build a tally, another version of Taliesin in Arizona, is a Russian woman. Uh, God, what was her name? What was her name? I have it here somewhere. Olga. Olga. Olga Vana. And when they met, okay, so when you were talking about him meeting Mema, mm-hmm. she was his. What did he call her? Uh, his intellectual equal. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So she, he acknowledged her as his intellectual equal. Right. So then when he gets with Olga Vana, he sees her as his muse. And interestingly enough, she was involved in a spiritual movement in Russia uh, by a very charismatic almost cult-like leader named Gurchieff. It was a spiritual movement at the turn of the century mm-hmm. that was very much akin to what we saw in Wild Wild Country. She was very high in that organization. Then she right. you know, hooks up with Frank Lloyd Wright. And they begin yet another facility, another community at Taliesin West where people are basically working for slave labor. They're cut off for the outside world. They don't read. They didn't even know until days after uh, Pearl Harbor was invaded that something was going on. And these people were there willingly because they were learning about their art. As they always are. As they always are. But... You know, they it's been called I don't like this term because I, I think that they're I think it's insensitive, but it's been called a modern day plantation. But, you know, there's a lot of movies that they show in these documentaries and there were no people of color. That was very interesting. I think there may have been one person it looked like uh, that is sort of telling about the times, you know, about what was acceptable in that level of society. You know, there's a lot of sort of implied and inherent racism in art at that time. But, I, you know, it's fascinating. There's just all these these layers and levels uh, that, you know, we, we get the benefit of it, but we don't see sort of the damage and the wreckage. And there was something else at the end of the, the documentary I was watching is that in his elder years, he lived into his early 90s and he had another surge of nonstop work in the last eight years of his life. Like you don't hear about that much, that that kind of phenomenon where an 89 year old architect is being like, please design something for me. Right. And some of his most beautiful and impractical works were designed there at the last of his life. But I thought it amusing, disturbing, or a combination of those two that at 90, I think he was 91. He got the news that his first wife had passed away and his son waited several days to tell him about it because, you know, he was frail. And then he tells him, and apparently 
Frank Lloyd Wright just falls apart, like is crushed and like, you know, is wailing my, my love, my true love. Wow. And I could imagine being the son at that time going, um, you abandoned us. I'm sorry. You haven't seen her in decades. Right. So once well. again, tying it back to f- from a, a, a pure DSM, the death of the narcissistic extension. Yes, so the I person was just who is yeah, the, the whoever pers- he chose at that time. Exactly, exactly. If I don't, if if Olgovan is not here, if Mema is not here, then I go back to the original person that is that is that part of me that I can either. I can either internalize or I can pretend is not there. Mm-hmm. But the idea that he still had some kind of relationship with this woman that he had treated so horribly. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. It is. I, I really liked this. I, I thought it was something different. And um, it was nice to sort of come back to L.A. too because we, we venture off into a lot of different areas this podcast more about us being LA based rather than all of our stories. Right. But it, it was nice to to definitely come back home for this one. So we would like for you, of course, to follow us through our social media. Um, on Instagram, we are at LA Not So Podcast and Twitter at LA Not So Pod. And Dr. Scott has been very busy on our Facebook page getting out some really good articles, some interesting News articles. And lots of memes. Lots of memes. Memes are his thing. Thank God for Googling Candace DeLong memes. I love oh that Candace DeLong. She comes up with some good zingers. She so. sure does. Her Twitter uh, bio says something so great. I'm going to have to find it here. Here, tell people to subscribe while we're So please <laughs> subscribe if you're just streaming. That's wonderful. But if you please subscribe to us and please go to the uh, iTunes store and give us very high ratings. We would be eternally grateful for it. And uh, we are also looking forward to seeing people at the True Crime Podcast Festival in July in Chicago. I'm totally stoked because I'm going to be doing taking some time off work so that I can go several places at that time. Yay. And we're going to be meeting up with some of our new colleagues that we've only met in virtual space. So we can't wait to meet uh, Jessa and Nick from Getting Off Podcast, Yay. which is wonderful. Right. And all of our other true crime brethren. And I we're know. we can't we don't have the specifics on it right now, but it looks like we're gonna there's a possibility of us being involved in some other things there around the podcast festival. So I won't say anything, but we'll it's very it exciting. Yeah, we'll, we'll make, make it, it fun, fun for you guys. Please come. Okay. I'm going to sign you off with Candace DeLong's Twitter profile. Says, retired FBI profiler, best-selling author, and commentator on hashtag deadly women and hashtag facing evil, currently shooting my mouth off for a living. Ugh. Right? Wait, we can get paid for that? What? That we would be great. This out. We're doing this for free, folks, because we love it. But we'd love to get... It wouldn't be great to be paid for shooting our mouth well, off. of course. Okay. Of course. All right. We will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye. Bye-bye.